You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 23rd of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. It's 1500 in Seoul, 8am in Zurich, 7am here at Midori House in London and 3am in Buenos Aires. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The Globalist starts now. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up, top officials head to the Cairo Peace Summit, but Israel, Hamas, the US and Iran don't turn up. But the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres uses the meeting as a chance to call for humanitarian aid. The people of Gaza need a commitment for much, much more. And we are working non-stop with all parties that are relevant to make it happen. Also ahead, Japan, South Korea and the US hold joint aerial drills. We'll examine how and if this serves as a deterrent to China and North Korea. Switzerland goes to the polls with gains for the far right and losses for the green. But will this actually change anything? Also coming up, why is Singapore so interested in the Arctic? I think attention to the Arctic is always very important. And this is the reason why uh, for Singapore, small as we are and far away as we are, we see the relevance. Plus we look at Monday's papers and get the latest art news too. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. Russian forces say they have maintained unrelenting pressure on the Ukrainian town of Avdivka and have stepped up shelling in the southern area of Kherson. Argentina's economy minister Sergio Massa has defied expectations by winning more than a third of the vote in this weekend's presidential election, setting him up for a runoff against the far-right candidate Javier Millet. And China claims one of its citizens has been accused of spying for the United States. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, Israel stepped up its bombardment of Gaza this weekend, saying the increased number of strikes would minimise the risk to Israeli soldiers in the next stages of the war against Hamas. Residents of Gaza City have been urged to continue moving south for their safety. Meanwhile, the US says Israel has agreed to allow a continued flow of aid into the Gaza Strip. The UN says 14 trucks arrived on Sunday, giving Palestinians another small glimmer of hope, but warned that much, much more was needed. Well, I'm joined now on the line by the journalist and broadcaster Emily Wither, who's travelling regularly between Tel Aviv and southern Israel. And in London, James Rogers spent two years in Gaza as a correspondent and is the author of Headlines from the Holy Land, reporting the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, Very good morning to you both. Good morning. Hello, good morning. Emily, may I begin with you? Very good. Thank you for joining us. Could you just tell us where you are and what the situation is at the moment, please? Well, I'm in Tel Aviv at the moment, but as you said, I've been going down south on a near daily basis. And we've seen over the last couple of weeks now this huge buildup of troops and tanks 
on the border with Gaza. And we were hearing that there would have been some kind of ground incursion, a ground invasion any day now. But as each day passes, it appears that that ground incursion is being delayed. And there are a number of reasons we think for that. Firstly, the negotiation of aid. So there's been a lot of pressure on a on Israel to increase its aid deliveries into Gaza. You mentioned there are 14 trucks. There's also been 20 trucks. I mean, that's still a drop in the ocean when you think that there used to be around 500 trucks going into Gaza on a daily basis. The other thing going on here is the hostages. There are 212 hostages believed to be held in Gaza. And there's a lot of pressure on the Israelis right now from the Americans, from other countries, the UK. They also have foreign nationals who are inside Gaza being held hostage and from the Israeli public to tread carefully because the fear is if Israel goes into Gaza, that will threaten the lives of these hostages. So that could be why we're seeing uh, a holdup in any ground incursion. There were, Emily, signs that there had been uh, clashes on the ground inside Gaza for the first time this weekend. So we do know that there has been some ground incursions already taking place. There have been troops going in, small groups going into Gaza to try and find out the whereabouts of where these these hostages might be. Some groups have gone in to gather intelligence. So it's not that nobody has gone in on the ground, but we haven't seen anything large scale, which is what people have been expecting to happen here any day now. I think that could be on hold while negotiations continue around these hostages. We also have the the Dutch Prime Minister coming here today. We have the French President Emmanuel Macron coming on Tuesday. And I think as these diplomatic visits continue and the US and others continue to put pressure on Israel, we could see this delayed now for for days or even weeks. James, tell us a little bit more about what your reaction is to this this list of diplomatic visits. I mean, there was a there's a straightforward suggestion that the, the Israelis haven't mounted their major offensive into Gaza because they have to wait until all the presidents and prime ministers and senior figures have actually arrived in Israel, had their conversation with Benjamin Netanyahu and and warned him that although Israel has every right to defend itself, maintaining human rights is an absolute fundamental here. Well, I think that that may be a factor, Emma, that's true. But I, I think, too, if you think about the domestic political pressure that the Br- Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is facing to respond to what happened, you know, this this these attacks of two weeks ago have absolutely shocked Israel to its core. Uh, and I don't think there's any question there is going to be substantial military action uh, in addition to the airstrikes and others that we've seen so far. And yes, that will be a consideration. It's part of diplomacy that you don't uh, embarrass your guests, as it might be seen in that sense, by acting in a way that, that they're advising against Stuart while they're there. But I think there's no doubt that this will go ahead. And I think, you know, quite possibly, as Emily has been pointing out, part of the considerations here are the most effective way of doing this. Because there is no question if the Israeli army was simply to go into Gaza to face what might an, an enemy which would vastly outnumber, but an enemy which is uh, presumably prepared for this. Um, then they would take big casualties. And the last thing that the prime minister needs uh, is more domestic political problems of that nature. I think Israel accepts that when their army does go into Gaza, and I say when and not if, um, then there will be um, big casualties, but they want to be sure that they um, 
are taking the best precautions that they can and the operation is as well planned as possible. Let's also not forget talking of guests coming, high profile guests. When President Biden came last week, uh, he referred to the comparisons that Israel has made uh, with 9-11, uh, saying, of course, that you know, when we fought, sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes, a, a reflection there of, of the wars in Af Afghanistan and Iraq and saying the United States response was not exactly the right one and counselling Israel against making similar mistakes. Emily, is that the sentiment that's being felt and expressed by people in the likes of Tel Aviv? Yes, absolutely. I agree with James. The anger against the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is palpable. People are so angry that this was even allowed to happen in the first place. Polls here show that 80% of Israelis find Netanyahu responsible for this security failure. And we've done some really interesting interviews with some families who have um, hostages, they have family members inside Gaza. And one woman we spoke to whose mother is in Gaza, she said that she still wanted the Israeli forces to go in despite the risk to her mother because she wants to see Hamas stamped out once and for all. The very feeling of security is shattered forever here in Israel. And so Israelis have to see a firm response against Hamas. And there is wide, wide support for that happening here. Even though there are many civilian casualties in Gaza, it feels to me as if Israelis just don't have the space to grieve for Palestinians and for Israelis. They want to see a full wipeout of Hamas and they accept that there is going to be collateral damage in, the, in, 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 in that process. James, let's look at the wider situation in the region. We have the Iranian foreign minister um, warning Israel that the Middle East could spiral out of control if it does not stri stop strikes on Gaza. Um, we have seen uh, this Cairo peace summit happen in the in the Middle East this weekend, but Israel, Hamas, the US, and Iran didn't didn't go. I mean, what are the how are the the, the tectonic plates shifting outside the immediate region? Well, I think a lot of people are wondering where this is going to end and how it is going to affect wider um, international relations. I don't think um, that there's any prospect of Israel not launching a large-scale ground operation into Gaza for all the reasons that we've been talking about. I think the concern is, though, that there could be a conflict in the wider region. Um, you mentioned Lebanon. Uh, there are reports from the Reuters news agency overnight that Israel has carried out two um, airstrikes against what it says were Hezbollah target targets in southern Lebanon. Um, Iran has been warning against the possibility of a conflagration in the wider region. And I think this is going to be one of the United States main concerns as well. You know, we've seen the United States um, deploying um, its parts of some of its uh, warships um, uh, in the eastern Mediterranean, just to remind uh, potential belligerents there of their presence. So I think there are big concerns that this could um, this could spread beyond the immediate borders, um, not least because this really came out of the blue. I mean, uh, we've talked too this morning about intelligence failures. Um, when I was in Gaza, the Israelis seemed to have remarkably good intelligence. And one of the things that really struck me in the first sort of 24 hours um, after those attacks unfolded on the 7th of October was the fact that they seemed to have had no warning of them. So I think 
you know, the, there's, a, there's a sense of shock right across the region, and there are lots of conflicts which could be sparked off by this if it is allowed to stay, um, if, if it isn't kept uh, under control. But it's quite difficult to see how that can be done. Indeed, Emily, just explain to us a little bit more about how, how the feeling is where you are, given the fact that, um, as James said, Israeli said its aircraft struck two Hezbollah cells in uh, Lebanon overnight. Uh, yesterday, we had reports that uh, at least seven people were injured as an Israeli tank accidentally hit the Egyptian border. These are two things that Israel does not want to happen. Absolutely, they don't want to see fronts opening up on their other borders because they're already going to be very stretched with Gaza and they're also stretched because there's unrest in the occupied West Bank so they're having to station more troops there as well. I mean, I was up in the north yesterday and the Israeli Prime Minister was there as and, you know, he had gone north yesterday too to warn Hezbollah not to get involved in the conflict, but clearly Israel is very worried because places that we went to have been evacuated. We went to Kiryat Shmona, which is a big city in the north, you know, 22,000 people, they've evacuated it. It's a complete ghost town. So it's a real sign of just how concerned Israel is about this daily cross-border fire that we're seeing now from Hezbollah in Lebanon. And a Israeli channel here, I should say, it's a a channel which um, very much is seen as a mouthpiece of the government. They are saying today that one of the reasons why we're not seeing a ground incursion yet is because they are worried about escalation on the Lebanese border and they think that it's becoming more complicated. Again, this is coming from an Israeli channel, but, you know, people here are very worried about the northern border as well at the moment. Emily, if we can shift you further south to to the southern tip of Gaza, which is where so many people have been told that they need to flee to to avoid being caught up in any um, ground operation by Israel. The humanitarian situation there seems reportedly to just get worse and worse and worse. But we have these little droplets of hope coming through with the UN saying 14 trucks arriving on Sunday. What help does that give? I mean, the help is is minimal. I have to be honest about that. You know, we see these trucks going in and we feel hopeful about it. But as I said before, 500 trucks would enter into Gaza on a daily basis. And so for 14 trucks to go in for a population of over 2 million people that have been under Israeli siege for the last two weeks. I mean, it really is a drop in the ocean. People do not have water. They're having to drink dirty water. They don't have food. The reports that we get from inside hospitals, you know, we speak to doctors in Gaza and they're having to carry out operations without anesthesia. They they don't have any painkillers. They are having to operate under torchlight from their mobile phones. I mean, it's horrifying. It's it's medieval conditions. And the situation is only going to get worse unless there is a, a very steady flow of trucks going in every day and a much higher number than what we've seen already. Over one million people in Gaza are now homeless. That's over half of, you know, that's nearly half of the population. So the needs there are enormous. And if this goes on for weeks and months, which it's expected to, how you know how how is the civilian population going to be kept alive not even without the airstrikes but just with their daily needs james finally if we could touch on the way that the rest of the world is is viewing all this um we've seen widespread protests um pro-palestinian protests in the last few days in the likes of london and in paris as well we're also seeing a huge rise of anti-semitism um not least online. And the way that this war is being reported is like no other, isn't it? Because Gaza, journalists can't get into Gaza now that 
uh, since the, the Hamas attack on, on Israel. Um, so things are being played out in real time online. How does that affect the way that this war is being played out and the way that people are seeing it? Well, I think, you know, what the last two weeks have shown us is what a huge international issue this still remains, even if international diplomacy has rather tended to leave this conflict to its own devices after the failure of major initiatives in the first two decades of this century. Um, you know, we, we see Russia, I think um, the Kremlin, for example, is probably quite content with the way that things are unfolding. They see this as a chance to distance itself from from the West, especially those countries whose leaders, we've been, as we've been talking about, have come to support Israel. Uh, the United States, the United Kingdom, Germany, the Netherlands, and so on. And it gives them a chance to be seen to be sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. Remember, we've heard a lot about how, you know, certain countries in the global south are, are rather ambivalent about joining um, the West's uh, campaign against Russia's war in Ukraine. So, and I think also, I think Russia is probably partly hoping that, um, this will distract attention from the war in Ukraine and may also divert Western diplomatic and other resources uh, elsewhere. But I think, no, you know, we, that's one of the remarkable things about covering this story um, is that you have this tiny piece of land between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea, but which means so much to so many million people all over the world because of ties of history, but of course, because of ties of faith and because it has so many links to the, to the current global political situation. James Rogers and Emily Wither in Tel Aviv, thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Fifteen sixteen in Seoul, 7.16am here in London. Now, for the first time, the US, South Korea and Japan have held a joint aerial drill near to the Korean Peninsula. The exercise has been held in response to the rising threat from China and North Korea. To tell us more, I'm joined by Alessio Patolano, who's professor at King's College London and an expert on Asian defence. A very good morning to you, Alessio. Good morning, Emma. So just describe to us what happened this weekend. Um, so, as you were saying, this is a quite a, a historic moment, um, and it has to be seen as um, part of the broader results brought about by the uh, uh, Camp David summit, in which uh, the three political leaders of South Korea, Japan, and the United States um, decided to um, clearly set the trilateral relationship on a completely different level. And of course, you can make political statements, the results and the consequences of, of those political statements are, are the, the most important manifestation. This exercise is one of those. Uh, just a few months ago, it would have been difficult to see how um, something that requires a considerable degree of coordination, of trust and understanding of each other uh, would have happened. One of the remarkable features it is said to have contained these um, air exercise also uh, B-52s, um, the, uh, um, the bombers that carry uh, nuclear uh, payloads. So this was an important showcase of signaling neighboring countries, and that's definitely um, uh, 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 not to North Korea, China, but also to Russia, in light of what we now know being North Korea's support to Russia, that these three countries 
are changing their way of working together and they should be take notice of that. So we have the, the B-52 strategic bomber being involved, plus fighter jets from the, the three nations, the US, South Korea and Japan. You say three, few, four months ago this wouldn't have been heard of. How did they manage to get this all together so quickly? So this is actually a very good question. And, and it's a question that, that in a way... Um, is 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 symptomatic of what has always been um, a, a, a relatively, um, if you want, uh, um, uh, unknown element because of of, of South Korea Japan uh, ties. Now we know that the bilateral ties between the United States and South Korea, from a military to military perspective, um, have been consistently on on good grounds. Same goes with the United States and Japan. They constantly have bilateral level of exercises. What we did not know was the extent to which South Korea and Japan could actually militarily. Uh, coordinate and cooperate, particularly on exercises that are relatively sensitive in nature. However, we do know that over the years they had developed the forms of uh, uh, conduct and interactions. A few years ago, uh, the wars we were very close, close to um, the two countries signing together um, 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 an agreement to share information in order to make better um, uh, military exercises happening. Um, the fact that this happened really is where one has to acknowledge the importance of Camp David. The basic fundamental building blocks were there, but they were never pushed where, and you know, nobody had ever tested how far they could go. This time we know that if push comes to shove, the three countries can make it happen, precisely because of that. And you, you're talking if push comes to shove, one, one is assuming then that the pushing and the shoving will come from the likes of China and North Korea. How have they reacted to this weekend's drills? So we're still looking at the uh, sort of uh, the, 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 uh, the full spectrum of reaction. I think that the international attention um, with the crisis in the Middle East um, certainly um, has taken something away in terms of uh, uh, minding um, what kind of reaction you would have in the region. I think it's going to be interesting to see particularly what North Korea does and the extent to which uh, the North Koreans feel that this form of signaling is directed at them. Having said so, though, we should expect more activity um, around the three countries, North Korea, China and Russia, in the months ahead, because we know for a fact that when Kim Jong-un visited Russia just last month, uh, there certainly uh, was indication that these three countries would work uh, more closely together. So despite the, the, the usual sort of type of form of response that, 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 that I'm sure will come about in terms of um, uh, feeling a sense of threat, denouncing the exercises, I think the most substantive elements um, are likely to be, we're likely to see them in months to come. And in that respect, this um, exercise is more about signaling resolve and the coming together of the three countries rather than a form of deterrence, setting the conditions for something that in the near future not to happen on the North Korean, Russian, Chinese side. Finally, Alessio, quite briefly, if you don't mind, the fact is that South Korea and, and, and Japan are now working together militarily. Um, it's always a very um, prickly relationship between those two countries. What what does this now mean for them and, and any hope that they will be, they'll be closer allied? 
Emma, this is a, an excellent question. And I think we need to be careful and not to set our hopes too high. Uh, we know domestically that in, in South Korea, the new president, uh, the political approval um, is, is less strong than it was um, at the beginning of the administration. Um, whether it would extend, this is due because of a better ties with Japan. I don't think that is the case. However, this means that depending on the political situation inside the, 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 the two countries, South Korea and Japan, um, you will have a degree to which or, or the relation that this, the, the speed at which the relationship continues to grow, uh, uh, we will see some differences, some nuances. So at the moment, I think we have to be happy that all of this is happening. We have to be absolutely uh, content with the fact that the Camp David has changed the, 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 the pace of, of proximity. Whether and to what extent this is the beginning of a lasting type of relationship, that is a slightly different question and only time will tell. Hello, Sir Pasolano. Thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. You with Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Let's have a look at today's newspapers. Joining me on the line is Julie Norman, co-director of University College London's Centre on US Politics. Good morning, Julie. Good morning. Now, a moment ago, we were talking about how the US, South Korea and Japan were carrying out aerial drills this weekend. But in the South China Sea, not too far away, um, there was this astonishing um, collision, in fact, not one but two, between uh, Chinese vessels and Philippine boats, which... um, whose pictures made the headlines everywhere. That's exactly right. And as expected, there's a bit of a trading of blame over why these collisions happened. It's not the first time we've seen this kind of collision before, um, but it is notable that, again, it was was too right at, at the same time in this area. And essentially, it was um, Philippine um, Coast Guards trying to reach a shoal that they have about 200 kilometers off of their coast, which is usually um, patrolled often by a Chinese Coast Guard as well, uh, which is about a hundred, about a thousand kilometers off uh, off their territory. This is a long-standing issue in the South China Sea, where China has been trying to exert its influence, um, has been trying to deter other states from um, from engaging in their ownership of different parts of the sea. So it's not totally unprecedented, but it is notable. Um, it caught my eye also. The U.S. Uh, obviously has a, a stake in this as well. They have a defense pact with the Philippines, and we're very quick to warn China against this kind of movements, what they say can only be deliberate. That you don't just accidentally bump a, a resupply ship that's trying to get to um, uh, to, to resupply its shoals or its islands. So the, the, the fact is that various outlets are reporting different things, aren't they? Because um, the Filipino uh, government task force says that uh, it was the Chinese who blocked and bumped their boat and the Chinese are saying that the, it was the Filipinos who did it. That's exactly right. And this is often the um, uh, 
the dynamic we expect when there is this kind of confrontation in the South China Sea with um, China saying one version of events and in this case the Philippines uh, saying saying another. Um, again, from a U.S. perspective, which is partly what I've been following this morning, is is they do see this was probably um, deliberate attempt by China, um, if not to bump, at least to block that access and uh, and also to um, to get very close to those boats. Let's move up to uh, Belarus and um, the, the the crackdown by Alexander Lukashenko on, and his regime on people, the, most importantly on the opposition or any opposition protest. Um, how is that being played out at the moment? Because it has been a while since the focus has been on Belarus. Yeah, so uh, DW had an interesting uh, story this morning that's saying while the crackdowns are still ongoing, there is a bit of a um, a personality call to propaganda campaign, if you will, around Lukashenko to make him look better sort of in spite of those crackdowns. Um, and you know, this is for several reasons. Uh, there's the 2025 election coming up. Um, there's the idea that Lukashenko is trying to make himself look a bit more independent, not quite so much under the thumb of, of Putin, um, and simply that he wants to ensure that some of the narratives of crackdowns um, don't uh, get to uh, go too deep and that he has kind of a counter narrative. Um, So a range of different um, uh, tactics that are being used from having quotes by Lukashenko on different articles of clothing and T-shirts that are sold to having a uh, a state um, sponsored film made about him to having a new charity named after him. So a lot of um, kind of pro-Lukashenko feel-good sort of sentiments to try and counter what is very real, of course, crackdowns on oppositions in the country. How much did the events of the summer with uh, Prigozhin and Wagner sort of ending up in Belarus, how did that change the situation for Lukashenko? Yeah, I think it was an important pivot moment. You know, up before that, Lukashenko had really been seen as just sort of a, um, a, a yes man to Putin. In that particular incident, he was able to portray himself as the negotiator, as the moderator, as again, having a bit more of political um, savviness and leverage. And I think that's something that he wants to maintain. Um, but also, again, that was um, such a... Um, a a different kind of incident than we'd seen before that I think he knew that that kind of impact was was something that was a little bit uncontrollable and I think wants to get control of the narrative coming out of that. Finally, um, let's head to Sudan, another region of conflict um, where we have refugees now finding themselves unable to find anywhere to go. That's right. So the fighting in Sudan continues. Uh, You know, I think when um, this conflict first broke out, there was a lot of international attention to it, but its sense has, you know, slipped from at least many of the headlines, even though it's not only ongoing, but actually intensifying to the extent that um, thousands of people who have fled from the city to other um, to other states like Jazeera state are, um, are also now facing fighting there. And so we might have kind of a, a multiple um, multiple displacements happening in a country where there's very few places to go. I would note also that um, in Darfur this week, uh, even the British government suggested that there's satellite imagery of um, of ethnic violence and at least um, and, per- and perhaps even ethnic cleansing happening once again in that state. So again, a lot of intensification there and some, you know, I think rightful worries from people on the ground that with so much focus on the Middle East now for obvious reasons that even more attention will be diverted from Sudan. Um, The Guardian is reporting that aid workers are struggling to get through with help. 
That's right. And unfortunately, this is a uh, situation that we've seen before in Sudan, where it's very difficult for aid groups to get that access. Um, Usually aid groups need at least some kind of green light and permission from the state, from the government to enter. And it's been very difficult to get that in recent days and weeks in Sudan. Um, That has obviously even exacerbated even further the humanitarian condition. And again, with multiple refugee movements, that's going to get even more dire. Julie Norman, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio with today's paper review. You're listening to Monocle Radio with me, Emma Nelson. This is a globalist and the time here in London is 7.30am. A quick summary now of the latest headlines. Russian forces have maintained unrelenting pressure on the Ukrainian town of Avdivka and have stepped up shelling in the southern area of Kherson. Russia's focused on the industrial east since it pulled back from a failed advance on Kyiv at the start of the February 2022 invasion. Its forces have tried to maintain positions in Kherson since abandoning the region's main town late last year. Argentina's economy minister Sergio Massa has defied expectations by winning more than a third of the vote in this weekend's presidential elections. It sets him up now against the far-right candidate Javier Millet in the next round of the contest. It had been thought that voters would punish Mr Massa for presiding over a financial crisis. And China claims one of its citizens has been accused of spying for the US. The Chinese state broadcaster said a man who worked at a defence institute was sent in 2013 as a visiting scholar to US University where he was coerced into revealing Chinese state secrets. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, the Swiss political map may have shifted a little this weekend, with the right-wing Swiss People's Party being the big winner of Sunday's federal elections and the left-wing Green Party not doing so well. Olivia Stribis is a professor of political science at Franklin University, Switzerland, in the Lugano, and he joins me now. Good morning, Oliver. Good morning, Emma. So just explain the background to it. I mean, we had, what, 200 seats in the House of Representatives and, and, and almost all of those in, in the Senate. Tell, tell us what, the, what, the, what everybody was voting for. Uh, yes, exactly. We were voting for the, both the lower and the upper house in Switzerland. Both houses have uh, like same powers. So both elections are uh, important. Yes, we elected 200 new parliamentarians in the lower houses and 46 in the upper one. Tell us a little bit more about what the... the the, the way that the battle was being fought. I mean, any anybody who had um, taken a walk down a street in Switzerland over the last few weeks would have had that rather uncanny experience of being uh, faced by, it's felt like dozens of smiling faces of candidates promising that they would bring you uh, a much better life. I mean, what were the big issues and, and how dynamic did everything feel in the run up to it? Yes, I think the, the peculiar situation was that no specific topic was clearly the most important one. I mean, very important were the important or were the price increases for uh, health insurance um, that are mandatory, uh, but also immigration became an important topic again. It usually is in Switzerland. And uh, climate change is also an important topic, of course. Well, let's go through some of those. Let's talk about immigration. I mean, the Swiss People's Party uh, fought quite a hard battle with that one. I mean, what was their line and how much did it impact or how much of an impact did it have on the fact that it has done very well this year? 
Yes, they've done well, right? They won like 3% of the vote, which is not so much compared to swings we have in other countries. But for Swiss, um, Switzerland is extremely stable in its um, electoral outcome. So this is an important shift in Switzerland. But we're kind of back to normal. Um, it was normal that immigration was a hot issue. It was not super hot this time, but more than four years ago. So I think we're kind of back to normal and the Swiss People's Party could basically um, profit from that and become against by far the largest party. So explain to us who, who, who are the winners and the losers here. At the moment we had, um, well, we said the Swiss People's Party had, had a 3% um, increase, but where does this leave the setup of the parliament? Right. So the, the People's Party won 3% and the Greens lost 4% and the rest remained more or less stable. Um, so it shifted again a bit to the right. We are basically back to where we've been in 2015. Not not exactly. So the Green didn't lose everything they won last time. Um, we have a clear structural center-right majority in Switzerland. Um, but the Swiss People's Party cannot govern on its own, not even with a single coalition partner. So they will always need a majority with at least uh, two other parties. And so typically we will have like a centre-right majority, both in the upper and in the lower house. Um, we mentioned the fact that the, the, the left-wing Green Party uh, lost a bit of footing. Uh, some have suggested that environmental politics has, has lost its appeal in Switzerland and elsewhere in, in Europe. I mean, how correct an assumption is that? I think the assumption is correct in the sense that, you know, four years ago, um, this was clearly the climate election in Switzerland for Swiss um, standards. There was a huge win by the Greens. So we, we, we've been a bit back to normal now. Um, but climate um, change, of course, is still a huge issue. However, we discuss more now specific measures against climate change, and they tend to hurt people and the Swiss People's Party also positioned itself very much basically against any new measure uh, against climate change that could somehow impact the pockets of the Swiss citizens. And I think this is also part of the reason why they won and why the Greens lost. So going forward now, I mean, you, you said quite a few times that this is back to normal. So despite the fact that the far right have, have got a bit more of a footing and despite the fact that environmental politics is that big troubling area where where does switzerland now head politically yeah with a quite stable center right majority and with the um i mean with the left again being more in an opposition um place i mean it's not right we don't have a government opposition system in switzerland so there is no clear um government and clear opposition. This depends on the issues and there are shifting majorities. But typically the majority will be more on the center right and the left will need um, to use the direct democratic system in Switzerland in order to push their own um, proposals. Oliver Strobus, thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Now, last week, world leaders and ministers descended on Iceland for the Arctic Circle Assembly. It's the largest international gathering on the Arctic and among the observer states on the Arctic Council is Singapore. Monocle's Andrew Muller sat down with Her Excellency Sim Ann, who's Senior Minister of State at the Singaporean Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and they talked about the Asian country's interests in the Arctic. 
I'll start with what I suspect is the obvious question that will be occurring to a lot of our listeners, which is what kind of Arctic strategy Singapore has from 7,000 kilometres away? What, what is Singapore's interest in this part of the world? Well, when people think about Singapore's involvement with the Arctic community, the first reaction is always that of surprise, even among Singaporeans. But once we explain it, I think people also feel that it's fairly intuitive. We are a very small island state. So we're both an island and a city and a port and a country. Only 700 square kilometers and about one third of the land area is less than five meters above sea level. So we're very vulnerable to climate change, in particular sea level rise. And we see getting involved with the Arctic community as a very good way of understanding what's happening uh, to the Arctic ice caps, what's happening in terms of climate change, and what that would mean for sea level rises in places like Southeast Asia, which for us is an existential issue. And we would like to keep abreast of research of the science and also work together with like-minded partner. We want to do our part too to protect the uh, global climate uh, and we see the Arctic community as a great place for us to do these things. I understand what you're saying because there's that thing that while Singapore, because of its geographic situation, could obviously be a, a victim of climate change, it is also, and this must be infuriating to Singapore, an extremely small emissions contributor, uh, being a reasonably small country. But do you foresee Singapore becoming more involved in the Arctic, establishing the kind of Arctic programs that a lot of other Asian countries do have, Korea uh, and Japan most obviously? For Singapore, we always want to be very active in international and multilateral fora. We are very conscious of the fact that we are small and our resources are limited. But we see a very good way of contributing to important issues like climate change, which requires the cooperation of so many stakeholders. Uh, we see a good way of participating in terms of helping to strengthen multilateral frameworks around these issues. So this is very consistent uh, in terms of our uh, approach towards international diplomacy. You see us very active in the UN. You see us very active uh, in a number of other multilateral settings. So we think that first, it's about showing up but also looking for areas in which we, despite our small size, can add some modest value. So, for instance, we have been working with the permanent participants to the Arctic Circle and offering them packages that have to do with capacity building. These have been very well received. Uh, also, in terms of some scientific cooperation, the Arctic fauna, in particular migratory birds, actually quite a number of them do make their way through Singapore uh, as part of their annual migration. And this is also where we can work together with like-minded scientists to track the movement of these birds. Uh, so we do have projects uh, that uh, are based on this theme.
And I think going forward, I have no doubt that we'll continue to find other areas to collaborate on with like-minded partners. Is there a commercial interest here for Singapore as well, though? Because Singapore, obviously, a massive commercial shipping hub, and you will be familiar with the talk that climate change, for good or for ill, could open new shipping routes through the Arctic, which could, I guess, conceivably be some sort of rival to Singapore if you if you didn't keep up with that? Well, we're a trading nation. So we like to keep up with what's happening in the world, but trading nations don't think win-lose. We always think win-win. And the way we see it is that should new shipping routes open up, well, actually this means new opportunities because infrastructure investments would need to be made in terms of port facilities, for instance. We're also very conscious that um, in terms of the global maritime shipping, there's now a very big drive towards lowering emissions, um, towards being more green. And these are areas that our companies have already started working on. So we see this as an area that we would like to constantly observe. We would like to avail ourselves of the latest developments, but you know, we don't think win-lose. Another question I wanted to ask, which also pertains to events a long way from Singapore, but which obviously have had an impact on the Arctic, uh, is Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the way that that has changed relationships in the Arctic. We've heard a lot of talk at this event about people saying that the old age of Arctic exceptionalism is over when there was that idea that whatever else the countries around the Arctic, including Russia, may disagree on, they could at least agree on the Arctic. Does it strike you from as far away as Singapore that things have shifted, that the Arctic is needing to reconfigure itself diplomatically and strategically? We, being an observer uh, of the Arctic Council, we are uh, aware that activities at the Arctic Council level uh, have been suspended because of the members' reaction uh, to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And as to how this situation might eventually be resolved, I think we stand guided um, by the Arctic Council members. We are, after all, an observer. But we think that it's quite important that collaboration resume um, as soon as practicable. And this is also the reason why we're very heartened to see that at the working group level, activities are also uh, starting to resume. uh, And we think this is important because climate change is such a pressing and critical issue. It really requires multiple partners to constantly stay engaged. Well, just finally then, if if you think ahead to 2024 and, and the Arctic as Singapore sees it, where do you see the, the primary opportunities? I think that for the Arctic, it's very important as a regulator of the Earth's ecosystem and um, as part of the global drive towards protecting the environment, towards mitigating climate change, I think attention to the Arctic is always very important. And this is the reason why uh, for Singapore, small as we are and far away as we are, uh, we we see the relevance of uh, what's happening in the Arctic to us. And this is also why we are very grateful and appreciative of the opportunity to stay engaged and to participate Uh, And we will do our best to be a good friend and partner to the Arctic community. And that was Her Excellency Sim Ann at the Arctic Circle Assembly talking to Monocle's Andrew Muller. You're listening to The Globalist.
CBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. in Berlin, 7.45 here in London. Let's talk business now with Andrew Walker, journalist and former economics correspondent for the BBC World Service, who joins me now in the studio. Very good morning to you, Andrew. Right, we need you to read the runes with with the global economy. Um, The the impact from what's happening in Israel and Gaza is some people are saying it is being wildly underestimated how far this is going to reach. Well, so far, if you look at financial markets, um, certainly up until the last week, there wasn't really that much impact, um, certainly on on stock markets. We've seen a bit of that coming through in the last seven days, and that's continued in Asia and Australia um, so far this morning. Um, We've also seen beginning to see a little bit more of an impact on the price of crude oil. And that's the kind of mechanism through which you might expect to see um, developments in the Middle East having a wider global economic impact. Remember, there have been a number of recessions in the last few in the last half century or so that have had their roots in the impact that political and military developments in the Middle East have had on on oil prices. 1975, the aftermath of the Yom Kippur War was the, the very obvious example when there was an embargo on oil exports to the United States and various other countries by some of the um, Middle Eastern oil producers. Now, you don't see a mechanism by which that's particularly likely to happen at this stage. But there certainly is some sign that um, that, that, that um, investors, financial markets, are beginning to get a little bit worry, worried about the possibility that, uh, that a wider conflict in the region might have some impact on the availability of oil. Indeed, and, and the, there's an excellent article in the, the finan- financial times in the in the uh, New York Times, which talks about you know the the risk the risk of wider conflict and the fact that this is not going to stop anywhere anytime soon. And as you say, that recessions have been prompted not sort of immediately but you know there's a knock-on effect Mm. the the domino effect is that two three four months down the line the rest of the world feels a pinch yes and it can take a good deal longer than that i mean the the global recession in the aftermath of the Yom kippur war was kind of a year or more afterwards so what happened in that case and in some other cases for example in the aftermath of the Iranian revolution uh, was that you had some disruption to oil prices oil got more expensive that then had an effect on um, on on company costs so company profits were therefore affected consumers were also affected in what they had to pay for for fuel for fuel for their for heating for um, for their for their cars um, and also the higher prices had a, a kind of second, even third round effect because it led to central banks raising interest rates to try and contain the inflationary effect. Um, and that 
those higher interest rates then aggravated the um, the, the downward eco- pressure on economic activity. And last week, we did have the uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, noting that um, geopolitical risks are an increasing concern. And that does raise in the minds of investors the possibility that we might see interest rates going higher still. Now, the hope was that the Fed had done enough, and indeed other central banks had done enough by way of interest rate rises, to contain the surge in inflation that we had in the aftermath of um, of, of the uh, of the pandemic, um, maybe that's not going to be the case. And um, I think I have to emphasise, though, that at this stage. It doesn't look, you don't see quite the same political mechanism by which Middle Eastern oil producers would take the kind of drastic action they took back in the 1970s. So it's a slightly more inchoate kind of fear in the markets, a kind of a recognition that instability in the Middle East could knock on into financial markets and the oil market in a way that's not entirely understood. Thank you for that. Let's move to something uh, to sort of fairly breaking news. We have the Argentinian elections, the mm. presidential elections this weekend. Um, it was expected that uh, a sort of, I think it was described as an iconoclastic one-term Indeed. congressman, <laughs> thank you the Times for that, uh, Javier yeah. Millet was supposed to do well on this one. He was he was going to sort of, mm-hmm. you know, shatter the, the, the any kind of Argentinian uh, political norms, but didn't do so well. And what ended no. up happening was that the financial minister ended yeah. up doing extremely well. Count Contrary to what many people had uh, Sergio suspected. Massa, yeah. yeah. Well, um, Mr. Millet has um, certainly hasn't shattered anything, but he is still in the race. Um, he will be in the runoff, so I don't think we can completely discount the possibility that he might end up taking the presidency. But no, it was. I, I'm sure he must have been very disappointed with the result. And of course, the background to this, with I mean, goodness knows, just almost every Argentine election in goodness knows how long, is the lamentable performance of of the economy. Um, It's worth keeping in mind that um, at around the time of the the First World War, Argentina was, by some measures, about as wealthy as France. Clearly, that is no longer the case. Long, long history of of, um, economic underperformance. Um, And, and of course, that raises the question of whether whoever wins, um, Mr. Massa or Mr. Millet, will they be able to reverse that? And the the, the performance of the Argentine economy has continued to be extremely poor. They've got one one of the uh, recurrent features has been very high rates of inflation over many decades. Current figure is most recent figure, 138%, which means that prices have on average more than doubled in the last year. There are places where it's worse, but you know, that, that's not something you can deal with very easily. Speaking of doubling, mm-hmm. uh, briefly, we have to touch on the price of olive oil. I've worked out that I go through a litre of the stuff a week. Mm-hmm. Um, I've noticed, yep, and the too. rest of the world has noticed, that olive oil is, is, is expensive now. It's doubled in price. Why is that? Well, I mean, food generally has got more expensive in the aftermath of the, um, in the, aftermath of the, the war in Ukraine, which has disrupted supplies generally and there's also been a more general inflationary surge across many parts of the world as a result of economic policies during the pandemic but olive oil's got a particular issue with um, drought in Spain um, some bad weather in um, in other major oil produ- olive oil producing uh, countries in the Mediterranean which the New York Times described as the uh, as as what um, the Middle East is to oil production although of course olive 
olive oil. There is no olive oil OPEC equivalent. <laughs> um, but, you know, nonetheless, we've seen a dramatic restriction in supply of olive oil um, and the harvest f- for the next round of production is not looking terribly promising. So, yeah, it's expensive. And I have to say personally, Emma, I have shared your pain on this. It's really awful. Um, <laughs> the, the fact is it's not that it's not as awful as if you were a farmer in Spain or Greece. And lost your crop, time. indeed. Well, not yeah. just that. You've got gangs stealing indeed. it. Oh, indeed, yeah. Um, it, it is indeed often the case when things get more expensive, they suddenly become more profitable to steal. And the and the New York Times is indeed reporting a number of uh, cases where farmers have, yeah, they've lost the crop and due to the weather and what they have managed to produce, they've um, they've lost to theft. It's a difficult situation, isn't it? Because, OK, it's it's nice for us in our London kitchens to cook whatever mm-hmm. in, with it. But, but the fact remains that there are areas of Spain, Italy and Greece whose livelihood they depend on it and B, the diet depends on it. No, absolutely. Um, and I, I guess what that means is that um, in, in day-to-day terms, a lot of people whose diet depends on it are being have been switching to uh, less appetising and perhaps less nutritional alternative types of seed oils. The the, the they are available, and you know they are sold even in places like, like Spain and Italy, where where the the first choice is quite emphatically olive oil. Andrew Walker, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Finally, let's get the latest art news. Francesca Gavin is an art critic and curator who's joining me now to have a look at some of the highlights from a very busy couple of weeks. A very good morning to you, Francesca. Good morning. How are you? Very well, thank you. And uh, absolutely ready to pass on my congratulations because it's not just been a busy week in the art world. You have a brilliant new job in Vienna. I do. I can't believe that I'm actually news, but I am. I've taken over as artistic director of Vienna Contemporary, the central um, contemporary art fair that happens each year there. Tell us a little bit about it because it it's it happens in the Stadtpark, doesn't it? And and it it brings in what young and old uh, sort of kinds of kinds of artists in a place which is you know famous for its absolutely brilliant artistic heritage. Yeah, I mean Vienna's an incredible scene. It's actually been in Stadtpark for two years, but next September we'll be moving to Mesa, a kind of larger, more traditional hall, just to expand a lot more. Its focus has always been Viennese, but also, or Austrian Austrian galleries, but also the whole Eastern European region. So it's a fair with a really different identity. I worked with them last year overseeing the emerging section, but now I'm going to be overseeing um, the emerging, the contemporary, and I'm going to be adding a new section on solo booths of late 20th century, which I think totally fits in with this incredible heritage and contextualizes what is a quite an incredible contemporary art scene. For me, I think Vienna has the opportunity to be the next art hub in Europe. So that's my intention. But I mean, how, how underestimated do you believe Vienna to be? Because when we think of Viennese art, we don't think of, in, immediately, many of us don't think of something that's happened in the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, which I think is what's so exciting about it. It's got two incredible art schools, more project spaces, I think, than I've seen anywhere. Mainly also, it's an affordable city, so artists can live there. So it's a bit, it has the vibe a little bit of what Berlin was like 15 years ago, whereas Berlin is now much more, let's say, commercialized and gentrified. Vienna has much more space for experimentation. It's got loads of very good galleries, a lot of 
international ones are moving there. Even Prenzen Huber and Gregor Podner have recently moved there from other countries. You've got really good emerging spaces like Felix Goudlitz, Craig Nielsen. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a it's a dark horse in the art world, and I think that the the reason is to make a fair that make people want to come there. They have a great other initiative that happens in Vienna in September called Curated By, where all the galleries bring in international curators to do group shows. So there's already a lot of people within the art world moving there, but it's just expanding that relationship. Finally, uh, Francesca, we have about a minute to talk about something else that's happening in the art world other than your new marvellous project. Take us to Paris. Um, Paris Plus, art, which is hilarious. I found out that it was called Paris Plus because they didn't want to have Art Basel, <laughs> the place Basel above the word Paris. Um, it was its second edition since they chucked FIAC out of their annual section. Um, they're still in the uh, ephemeral um, tent next to the Eiffel Tower rather than the Grand Palais, which is still being refurbished, but should be finished by next year. It was incredibly busy and I think sales were very good. It's got a really different vibe to freeze, let's say. It's the kind of place you walk by people and they're talking about millions quite openly. You can buy this Richard Prince, it's only 10 million, etc. So you really feel like it's a city that is taking art incredibly seriously. But the fair was good. It had a quite interesting spread of galleries. The younger galleries are great. There was a very large blue chip section with darker walls. Um, it, I think it's been a huge success. And I think everyone's quite, I think they're going to be going to become the only art fair that's happening in October. So Freeze should be worried. Francesca Gavin, thank you so much for joining us here on The Globalist once again. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Tom Webb, Isabella Jewell and Chrissy O'Grady. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Mariella Bevan. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday in London. Hope you can join me for that. And The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening and have a great week. <laughs>